Geek Card presents Back Issue Bloodbath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Padula Neal. Today we remember an amazing artist that was always for sale. Welcome to Back Issue Bloodbath. I'm Andrew Young. I'm Padula Neal. And this week we look back on the artwork of artist Tim Sale, who uh, was taken away from us this past June and has left a small but very impactful amount of artwork in the world of comics. Petula, I know that you're a fan of Tim Sale. What was the first Tim Sale comic or piece of artwork that you saw? I don't know if it was the first, but the one, like the first hardcover I bought was the one in Rome. But I feel like I probably read some of like the old Arkham stuff. Okay back in the day but yeah in terms of like buying a hardcover on purpose because i had just gotten back into catwoman because of his homie darwin may he also rest in peace and power the one in rome was like oh this is too pretty like i need to own this and like own it in like a nice copy now when you got the one in rome did that did that uh, interest you to go back and read the uh, the batman stories it connected to dark victory and long halloween i'd already read those oh, okay but it did make me keep up with some of his stuff and also this, his solo as well. Ah, yes. The solo one show. That was the thing that DC yeah. was doing to showcase different artists. The first ever solo was Tim Sale. Definitely. And yeah. of course, the cover was Catwoman. So I understand why you gravitated towards that. So yeah, it popped. It was at a time when uh, my friend Stuart, who really likes Catwoman, loves Catwoman and sort of helped get me back into her praising and had a real love-hate relationship with Catwoman and all of the horrible things they'd done to her outfits over the years and you know her character but he specifically had a lot of frustrations with here here's a functional outfit now let's like basically turn her into the Halloween version of it like you know Halloween nurse Halloween whatever it's like Let's take a like something that looks like something someone could burgle in. And yes, it may have some costumey elements, you know, a tail here, you know, improbable nails there. And they would just always tighten it up, unzip it, throw in a impractical heel. So around the time that the Darwin one happened, that's when, you know, his delight bled over into me. And I sort of got back into Catwoman in a way that I wasn't into any other DC character really at that time. Hmm. Yeah. So that Tim was one of the people involved in the stories that gave her more to do than just hiss and pose and scratch at Batman's nipples. Like he was part of one of the best eras Hmm. in for my money, for my reckoning in modern Catwoman. Right. No, definitely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, him along with Tim Sale with the, you know, there was Catwoman in Rome, but uh, they also had like quite a lasting effect on Batman overall. Of course, the two of them would be paired together multiple times for the uh, Dark Knight Halloween specials. They did, I believe, about three of them, which then segued into them doing Batman the Long Halloween, which uh, was kind of like a takeoff from what Frank Miller had done in Batman Year One, and then they followed it up eventually with Dark Victory as well. So they have a nice collection of stories that has really touched upon Batman, even to the point where elements of it were used in the latest Batman film. The Long Halloween was one of the inspirations for the latest Batman movie. 
But aside from that, they were also, you know, they did Superman for all seasons, which was kind of an origin story look back on Superman. And that was so much beloved that when they decided to jump over to Marvel, they did the same sort of thing with uh, Daredevil, with Daredevil Yellow, Spider-Man with Spider-Man Blue, Hulk with Hulk Gray, and many years later, Captain America White. And it's funny, when you look at those, it was obvious from the start that their whole plan, once they did Spider-Man Blue, that their whole plan, the, the idea is that the story was being told by the main character to someone they had already lost. So with Daredevil Yellow, he is uh, talking about Karen Page. He's talking to Karen Page. In Spider-Man Blue, he's talking to Gwen Stacy. But Hulk Gray happened, and I think the plan was when they put it together that he was going to be talking to Betty Brant, because at the time, Betty Brant was presumed dead in the comics. It had been for many years. But just, I think, probably about six months before the first issue came out, Bruce Jones brought Betty Brant back in the comics. So the wraparound for Hulk Gray was Bruce Banner talking to Doc Sampson the entire time. Like, and so they cut to them in like a psychiatry office the entire time, which was then breaking away from the theme. I'm like, you mean to tell me there isn't somebody else in freaking his life that has died? Like, come on, it's the Hulk. Somebody's or, got it. Or use the therapy framing in a more literal way and have him talking to himself before he became the Hulk. Yeah. Cause essentially that Bruce Banner is dead. Yeah, exactly. So the, with that possibility, like those, those would have been great, but I think they just went with, Oh crap. They made this. Let's quickly make a change. And they, they made it. So when they finally did Captain America white, the plan was when they mapped it all out was that cap was going to be talking to Bucky, but in between the time they had conceived it. And then many years later when they released it, Ed Brubaker brought back Bucky as the winter soldier. But instead of last time where they scrambled, they just went, ah, fuck it, and left it the way it is. So in that story, Cap is talking as if Bucky is dead. And to my previous example, <laughs> technically the the pre-messed up version of Bucky is also dead. It's not the yeah. same guy. Again, therapy issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like his before Bucky and his after Bucky, two very different Buckys. Very yeah. different Buckys, yes. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was their kind of legacy over at Marvel. But there's actually a lesser known legacy at Marvel is that they actually did some work on the X-Men books. The first thing that I ever saw done by Loeb and Cell was a three-page story or four-page story in an X-Men annual in, I believe, like the, mid, the early, like mid-90s. And it's about Bishop and the two other agents that he came to this timeline with. And they, they did a couple other small things like that. But then one that everybody always forgets about from 1996 is Wolverine Gambit victims. So Gambit is trying to hunt down this serial killer that's killing people off. And when he finally catches up to the killer, it looks like it's Wolverine. But Wolverine can't remember what's happened to him and it's obvious that he's being framed. So the two of them have to work together to clear Wolverine's name and find the real killer. And there's kind of a mirroring of the way that the killer is doing these 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 murders that it kind of apes Jack the Ripper. And I actually I think it does take place in England too. It's it's a very good story that nobody ever talks about. <laughs> because the next story they did after that was Batman the Long Halloween. You know, and this would have been they tried for so long to do a Gambit movie and we know they love to have a Wolverine. They could have just slid this one into the Hugh Jackman era and that this would have made a great launch for a Gambit movie. Yeah, Wolverine Gambit victims, totally. Yeah. Definitely. 
Now, another story that is kind of like one of my faves that Tim Sale did the art for was something he didn't do with Jeff Loeb, but did with our boy Darwin. Our homie. Yeah. And that is uh, Superman Kryptonite, which was the original first story arc of a comic series called Superman Confidential, where the idea was different creative teams would come on for a story arc each time and tell a story that's kind of in continuity, but out of continuity. Like it was like it take place in any time period or anything like that. And so the story that uh, they told here was a very interesting story about the Kryptonite meteorite an alien life form that looks like throughout the entire story he's he come... looks very martian manhunter-y but he's yeah. not but he looks like it yeah and yeah. he's come it looks like they're setting it up to look like he's come to kill superman when in fact he isn't he wants to be free <laughs> and yeah. it's like for me in that book i really enjoyed the lois lane story part of it the lois lane arc of it sort of thing where it's her trying to deal with the fact that she's got the hots for Superman. But, you know, she's she's Lois Lane. So she's like, yeah, he can come to me sort of thing. I'm the, like, I've got everything else going on in my life sort of thing. And so the two of them are kind of trying to define their relationship in the story. And uh, to me, that was like one of my favorite aspects of it. Apologies to any uh, journalists out there. We are aware that another problematic trope, not just in comic books, is the attractive reporter using their attractiveness to get in with the subject of a story this treatment of lois i love it except for that like i get that people are into her like you're attractive you're smart but there is a bit they they lean a bit much on the like is she getting access to gallo because she's a good reporter or because she's got great games like it's a little bit of that like yeah, but I just, yeah, but they do that a lot. They yeah. do that a lot. It's like a, a very frustrating trope for journalists and, you know, all properties like movies, television, whatever that, you know, journalists don't act like this in the real world or at least good ones don't. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, this I love a lot of this mostly because it's like two of our favorite homies. Like there's a lot of stuff with Lobe, but like him and Darwin together, <sighs> all timers, all timers. And you can just the one thing both of these dudes loved uh, was brunettes because just they're giving like both Clark a version of Clark that is just slightly left aesthetically of some of the more kind of iconic things that we're used to but somehow like even hotter <laughs> and like the nerdy Clark and the the Clark butts Let's give me some time in that closet please <laughs> <laughs> a little like soaky jacket Clark brought like thank you yeah, can I borrow that for the weekend? <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, the way they approach characters. And it was always kind of just on the edge of pastiche, but make it modern. The two of them together working on, you know, a character as iconic as Superman, just it's so it's so pretty. Like, honestly, it the edges. There's something that uh, he does with mouths where it always looks like, especially with Lois, like she's just biting her lip in like consternation. It's like, oh, this looks so good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like I get why all of these men, well, I mean, technically Clark Kent's is one and not two, but yeah, I get why. All these men are just letting her walk all over them. Well, for me, there's yeah. this one point where she kind of turns around to Gallo at the end of the night and says, thank you. I had a lovely time. Yeah. That panel is like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, it's like her eyes just melt you, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's if there was a, a more adult, uh, let's say, cartoon version of this, 
you would hear like Alana from Archer off camera saying, did I just hear your erection? Because like Gallo, (laughs) (laughs) Gallo looks strung out. Like he just gets a bit of cheek and he's like, I spent like, I don't need to go home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm already done. Yeah. Oh, man. I always feel like Superman Confidential is overlooked in the same way that early in his career, Sale would do uh, a number of, I, I can't remember if it's Shadow of the Bat or something like that, but basically they were backup stories in um, kind of out of continuity Batman comics. They were written by the likes of Darwin Cook and James Robinson. Some really good stories that a lot of people overlook, and I believe they were reprinted in a Tales of the Bat or something like that hardcover that came out in... I think maybe 2012 or 2013 but there if you can go back and find those stories those are some amazing batman stories this is coming from a guy that's not a huge fan of batman tim sales artwork on batman is amazing yeah another one that i don't know if you went back to in our exploration for this uh the the blades batman and blades the cavalier batman story that was sale and, and uh robinson yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. one of the stories I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The the Zorro type but versus Batman. It's very especially in the first issue, it was almost as if your favorite boy, F boy Matt, was meeting up with Batman because it's like the red and the black <laughs> and uh somebody's clearly having more fun than Batman. Literally anyone any day is having more fun <laughs> than Batman and playing off that. But that one as well, it is the kind of thing when I'm reading, I'm thinking, well, Andrew's not a super huge Batman fan, but he'd like this. Yeah, no, I yeah. love that story. It was great. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely one that's worth checking out. Now, it's amazing. We've gotten in here a number of minutes and we haven't brought up Tim Sale's, you know, cup of coffee in the big time in the late aughts. One of the things that, uh, you know, obviously, Batula, you must have enjoyed because you ended up reading the comics based on this as well, and that is the Heroes series. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. What I love was that they did that whole season. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the artist had drawn all these different uh, paintings from the future, but it was Tim, like it was predicting the future, but it was Tim Sale art. And the character gets killed off midway through the season. And so at the end of the season, comic fans are watching going, oh, I guess no no Tim Sale art next year. And they found, they created an entire plot line just to bring back Tim Sale's art. <laughs> like He had made all these... These these paintings in the past that were taken by the government and hidden and blah. It was before this kind of cross marketing was done everywhere the way it is now. Mm. It was next level and it was so early on. And I remember you could go to this site and then every week there was like a hidden pixel. And if you clicked on it, you got like the full image from but the comic version of the painting Mm. that the character drew. And I would every week after the show go online, find that save, like download and save like the image to my computer. Cause it wasn't like they saved them in a gallery or whatever. It was a whole thing. And then I bought the actual like comics after they came out, they added an element to the show. If you liked comics, like if you already liked kind of superhero stuff, it was a great show for that. And like trying to, especially at that time, so surprising for NBC having this kind of a show before this era, you'd think, Oh, heroes. Yeah. Uh, Of course they made that show. But back then it wasn't that common. No. And like the Marvel, the Marvel cinematic universe was in its infancy. Cause I believe the first season happened. The first season of heroes happened a year before Iron Man came out. And so many people on that show really blew up after it i mean if you were a gilmore girl's head and then maybe that's how i got into it because of peter petrelli milo ventimiglia you mm-hmm. may know him from making you cry on this is us 
and uh, Claire, the cheerleader, save the cheerleader. So it had all of that. But the those iconic images of those characters doing almost like their signature moves, like Peter with the trench coat billowing and then having that translated into Tim Sale's art. It felt like that show was made for me. And yeah. within the show, we had our kind of surrogate nerd character hero as well. And then we also had the kid that actually read the comics that were based on the premonition art and it was mm. it worked on so many nerd layers that i still to this day wonder if the writer strike hadn't happened what could have happened for that show and yeah and that kind of because they were building up like a fun universe and they were able to go back with the parents and right and the writer yeah. strike actually caused them to change a lot of their, yeah, yeah fundamentally a lot of their approaches to instead try to wrap up story arcs quickly take away the uh, serial nature of it and when that happened, the use of Tim Sale's art also dissipated because the character of Isaac Mendez, who had been dead for two seasons, they didn't want to dwell on him anymore. Yeah. And, and it's we just had like the one little ratty comic that uh, Ice Lady's kid was hanging on to. I forget. Yeah, yeah. that that's it. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of funny that the whole change in dynamic happened when they brought Jeff Loeb on to be like a creative director of the show. So it's kind of like Sale disappeared when Loeb became a major part of the show. <laughs> You knocked your yeah. buddy out of the game, man. <laughs> yeah, I feel it, it's almost like a frenemy energy. I feel like, at least aesthetically, I always felt like if he had to you kind of pick a better friend, at least artistically, it just yeah. felt like he vibed better with Darwin than Jeff. Like, they did big things together, but... Yeah, yeah. no, actually, the, the I had gotten to meet Tim Sale a couple of times. I did an interview with him back in 2016, the summer of 2016. Unfortunately, my cameraman and audio recorder really screwed up that day. We were working with a bunch of new equipment, so I don't blame him, but... Uh, but yeah, I didn't get to keep the interview very well. It didn't sound that great, so I never released it. But uh, I had talked to him about Darwin Cook, and he had told me, he goes, yeah, right, close up to before his passing, he was spending a number of days with him that he would just go over to Darwin's house and they would draw covers together. And that's the way they kind of bonded, because Darwin, Darwin, the only thing that was actually keeping his spirits up was doing art. So the two of them would just sit there and draw covers all day. And uh, it was very obvious to me that day that Tim was, uh, was still, you know, grieving for his friend. Uh, but he was... Such a giving guy. Actually, it was funny. I walked over there and I set up the interview with him. He said, yeah, we'll do it on Saturday in Artist Alley. I was like, okay. So I got there on Saturday, right at the beginning of the day to do the interview. And he said, yeah, let's do the interview. And there was like a uh, convention handler there who was like, Tim, what is this? We're not supposed to. And basically Tim turned to the guy and said, I told this man I was going to do this. I'm going to do it. You can sit down and wait. And we got to talk, had a fun time. Tim didn't rush me, and he once it was done, he turned to the guy and said, now we can do what you want to do. And I was like, I always, the guy did what he, like, there's other, some other people might have automatically just gone, oh, okay, well, if we, I'm sorry, we can't do this right now. But he had, he made a promise to me, and he kept it. And uh, Tim Sale was a stand-up guy. It's tough, tough time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, like, Tim Sale's artwork is iconic, and of course, we talked about the Challengers of the Unknown uh, series uh, a f couple of months back. Some of the prettiest explosions I've ever seen. There you go. There you go. So it was funny. I used to date a girl who hated Tim Sale's art because she felt it was ugly. But when I look at the artwork, it's like, no, it's kind of like a pretty ugly. Like you can look at the characters and see there's the characters that he gives like true beauty to. But then there's the alternate characters where he's trying to reveal something about their inner self. So there is kind of like an ugliness that seeps through their face. 
he carves out the under eye shadows a lot. So definitely if you're a fan of eye creams, like this isn't it for you, even at their best looks, whether it's a Lois or Selena or even, you know, the one of the iconic images of Claire from Heroes, like he does a lot with the shadows around the eyes. So yeah, he loved to play with negative space. Yeah. So there was always like, so like case in point in, I believe it was Long Halloween uh, when Bruce Wayne is uh, corrupted by Poison Ivy. And so Catwoman has broken into the uh, Wayne Manor to try to save Bruce Wayne, save Batman. And he's covered in ivy and everything. She's ripping the ivy off. And they do like, it's like an aerial shot from the begin- top of the dining room. And it's like this big cavernous black space with like the ivy growing all over Bruce. And it's like... You're really dragged into the image because of the way he uses the the negative space to kind of almost make it like like a huge spotlight and cavern all at the same time. And does some of the best Joker's mouth work as well? And where a lot of people go more horizontal to um, show kind of the horror of the grimace or people who've been like Joker gassed, it looks almost like you've cut like slashed a seam some across someone's face horizontally. That makes me think of a joke from a movie that Beanie Feldstein was in where a woman had had twins and she says it looks like the Joker's smile down there. Sidebar. Anyway, <laughs> the... <laughs> What uh, Sale tended to do was go horizontal. So it just, it would, face at rest would be your normal kind of triangular Joker face. But then with the smile, with the full teeth, all of a sudden it was like... Yeah, the top part of his head would get small because the teeth would just keep going up. Yeah, yeah, physically impossible for like a human face to do that. But somehow it would just, the teeth would be sort of three times as long as they could possibly be in the mouth with the face at rest. Yeah, love the Joker's mouth work just across different properties now i believe i mentioned this before about tim but he was actually colorblind and so everything when he'd do like the tones and shading he did everything in a gray wash and other colorists would bring in the the pop to it but it's kind of amazing that for somebody's color colorblind even with you know gray washes was able to do such distinction in the shading and be such a master of negative space but maybe that explains why even one of my favorite ones in the solo where there's a a woman in red who's very much reminiscent of if your favorite thing is the lady in red in the first matrix movie that mm. and you don't need like to see color to know if i do everything really sharp and clean but shades of not pure gray because there is a bit of sepia happening and then just make this woman wear one color whether or not it fully red to him unintended it is so gorgeous and you know you look at that and just the the subtlety and the restraint, it kind of makes some of the goldy kind of imagery that you get in a Sin City seem almost garish and mm. aggressive. Like it's the, it's the subtlety. It's, it's all femme fatale. Like I wouldn't even say textbook. I would say this is like your master class, like angle tat smoke rising from the grates, like street light out. Like it is. Yeah. Just angles and shadows, and you only need to see like 20, 30% of this figure emerging from the shadows. Just be like, this is some, I don't even need words. This is just some iconic visual shit that's happening right now. Yeah, no, totally. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. It's kind of ironic that a guy who's colorblind, his best known work at Marvel was a series of books that color was the uh, the focus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's the genius, right? Like the, you know, people who can't hear who make great music. It's just something about his approach. And 
the it always looked classic and that was what i loved about darn as well it, it was so out of time it didn't look too much like you're trying to mimic a different time period it just looked like you could read this 10 20 30 years from now and it would still they would still pop it's not too much of a certain time or style uh, very minimalist with even kind of the clothing so you could imagine these outfits being worn 20 years from now or 20 years ago the simple hair going for like the key things on certain characters whether it's just like Clark having a face that looks like just the side of a bard and just the curl that's it that's all you need it doesn't matter if his eyes are smaller his lips are a little more pinched his shoulders look preposterous in a suit but there's just something about the way he would carve out the iconic pieces of different characters and just punch them out against like shadow or light mm. that allowed for an economy of text as well. And I think that's another thing that's consistent across whether he was, you know, working as a writer partially on some of his work as well or doing the art the more show than tell. Yeah, no, totally. And, uh, you know, we didn't get into it, but uh, of course, long before the super, like the, the Batman stuff and everything he's done, he also did some work on Grendel. That is definitely worth checking out if you can hunt that down. Uh, there is, I don't know if it's still in print, but there is a very cool Tim Sale art book out there that kind of gives you the history of his work up until about 2010, I think. You should definitely check that out as well. The man is, he was a fantastic artist. I have a number of his uh, convention sketchbooks that he's that he put out during uh, some of his convention runs. Any artwork that you can get of Tim Sale is definitely worth checking out. He always had compelling artwork. And his covers were amazing. His interiors were amazing. His use of negative space is amazing. He's definitely an artist that will be forever remembered and made a splash for not having a huge amount of stuff in print. Um, of course, because he also did work in advertising and things like that. But when it came to comics, it's a very small pool, but it's all great stuff. So definitely worth checking out. We come to the end of this week's episode of Back Issue Bloodbath. Petula, where can the good folks find you? At Inatif.com, on Twitter, at Obesakandawit, O-B-E-S-C-A-N-T-A-V-I-T, and here with you. Of course, you can find everything I do over at GeekCardShow.com. Follow me on Twitter, at GeekCard. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post the new episode every week. But the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice. And make sure that you listen every week and tell your friends and get them to tell their friends and uh, find out what happens next in the world of comics through the eyes of Andrew Petula right here. Back Issue Bloodbath. I've been Andrew Young. I've been Petula Neal. Have yourself a good...